Hey, this is Ryan Bloom. On today's episode of the Fireside Chat, we'll be speaking with Daniel Alexander and Richard Loring of Domos Co-Living. I'll be asking them questions about their philosophy on the new mixed-use multifamily real estate projects that they're involved in, how they're seeing the need for both physical space, but the experiences that go around them, and the types of things they are offering future homeowners that are attracting them to their projects. It's a really interesting discussion on a subject that I happen to love. These are the people who are making projects for the future attainable and accessible to all. Enjoy. I've been really looking forward to this discussion. And before, a lot of people don't know this, before founding Urban Bonfire, I spent seven years working in the planning of mixed-use real estate for a company based in Montreal and traveled around the United States and the Caribbean, working on the activation of downtown's main streets, uh, working with cities like Rockford, Illinois, uh, working at Habersham in South Carolina, working in the Cayman Islands, and really trying to understand, and in reading your profile, trying to understand what the, what the 21st century person wants to live in. What are the experience that is, or the experiences beyond just the physical walls and bedrooms, bathrooms, kitchens, what are the experiences they are seeking that truly defines place? And a lot of people and a lot of companies in their marketing talk about living. And I noted that you talk about co-living in yours. And I noted that minor shift and I wanted to understand from you philosophically, where do you see this and what drives you in terms of trying to create this, this, this place that is so much more than just the home for your customer of the future. Yeah, um, there's so much that goes into it. I mean, place is different for everybody, all demographics, all phases of life. I mean, you have people that are forming households, and most of the you know most of those households that are forming are in a certain you know price point, and there's which creates a lot of you know upward pressure on on demand for price for uh, you know place, and then you have people that are you know headed up. The, you know, the income spectrum and, and some people are retired and, some, you know, and maybe getting back into a part time. I mean, place means so much to so many different people. At the same time, we have this, I'd like to call it a temporary, you know, moment in time here, you know, the pandemic that, you know, place is now the center of the earth or the universe, you know, basically, I mean, our home is what we're, we're in our homes now more than I was ever in my home at any given time. You know, you just, you, 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 you work there, you sleep there, you do everything there and you barely go out because of what's happening. So, I mean, it's, you know, you, you consider all that and you go, you know, what are the drivers to what motivates people? Um, you know, be, you know, so let's park, let's put a pin in the pandemic and just talk about place in general and urbanization, you know, from an urban planning perspective, which, you know, you, you mentioned in your, in uh, earlier on in the conversation, they, you know, you, you see this movement out of the gateway cities into more economically friendly markets, let's just say. Places like, you see people leaving Los Angeles and New York to the world to move to places in the Midwest, parts of Texas, all over the Southeast. I mean, we're, we're based here in Atlanta. I think they've finally reached 7 million people here. I mean, it's, it, it, they're, you know, this place is growing like gangbusters. You see a lot of Fortune 500 companies here. You see the tech boom going on. You got all the colleges right at downtown, state capital, 
biggest airport, busiest airport in the world. I mean, you know, there's, and they build another, you know, build another lane. So, <laughs> you know, it's, you see all these things coming and all these drivers and you go place uh, that, that word is just, it just means so much to, you know, to, to everybody pick your demographic for us. We're focusing on cause and effect of attainable, the lack of attainable housing. What I mean is when you, when you talk about place and urbanization and people living more in the urban core, you, 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 you see a lot of this class A multifamily product coming online, whether it be condo, whether it be, uh, you know, apartment communities or high rises. And that is being delivered into the, the high end of the renter spectrum this renter spectrum most of the households are forming right dead smack in the middle and you have most of the deliveries servicing that top you know five ten percent and so that causes displacement you know people no longer can live in the areas that they work which they would prefer to live nearby the, the area within five miles at, at the very least five or ten miles but the, some even one mile away but it, it makes it difficult for people to live in the places where they work and so the way we see it is we want to stem that tide of displacing people and we want to help inject mass amounts of attainable and affordable, smallly affordable housing into the housing supply. That is our goal. And co-living is just one way of doing that, of one way of many solutions of doing that. So if you have a, I'm, I'm sorry about the long one, the detailed answer, but you know, <laughs> but um if you have a, let's say a theoretical 100 unit building and you can offer, you know, 10 or 15 co-living units, studios, 10 or 20 studios, 30 or 40 one bedrooms, you see where I'm going in twos and threes, you have this complete mix where there's affordability, natural affordability because of shared space, great equal amenities. So you're not discounting the experience that like, like you mentioned before, and, you're, and those folks are able now to live in the urban core, near jobs, near amenities, near social opportunities, be plugged in and economically mobile and things like that. And so that is that is the goal of, of um, Domos, to inject that into the housing supply. Interesting you mentioned that. And I'd like your take on this. My Again, in my past life and in my research, I, I, I studied and learned recently that between 1950 and 2050, the percentage of people on a worldwide basis, not just U.S., but in the world, who lived in urban versus rural settings will have inverted itself. Where yes. 1950, 25% of the world's population urban. By 2050, 75%. I looked just the other day at the U.S., and 86% of the U.S. population lives in what's considered urban. Yeah. In studying this, I realized, and I think one of the big drivers is that people today are, to your earlier point, defining where I live very differently from just the confines of a home based on how many bed, how many bath, how many square feet, versus on overall lifestyle and experience. So what, and I'll use my mom as a great example. My mom is, you know, 74 this year. Would it be the perfect person to sort of spend the winters in, if she played golf, Arizona, and might want to be on a golf course, yet would more would be much happier living in Ann Arbor, Michigan in 900 square feet because her yoga club was down the street and she could go to the farmer's market and she yeah. had a book club or could, and I, as are you seeing 
tremendous shift in the demand of the consumer who are foregoing the quote-unquote smoke or the illusion of what they want and need to live in exchange for the really impactful parts and experiences that let them maximize their lifestyles. And I'd love to get either of your thoughts on, on that. Well, Daniel, since I'm, you know, a graduate of the University of Michigan and spent so much time in Ann Arbor, I think I'll take, I'll take this one. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting because I've been thinking myself a lot about um, Ann Arbor, Michigan and other college towns like those. And, you know, the, the attraction for me, and I think the attraction for a lot of people is that these towns have, uh, you know, cultural amenities uh, and opportunities and work opportunities that you wouldn't normally find in, in a smaller town, right? You, you usually find those opportunities in a large city. I mean, this is, this is why people, this is why you saw, you saw that inversion, right? It's, you know, large cities, it's where the action is. It's where the jobs are. It's where the cultural opportunities are, right? And you combine that with the fact that, you know, you need fewer farmers these days to produce, you know, larger amounts of food, you know, and you end up, and you end up seeing what we're seeing now. And I, I think, um, you know, one of the premises uh, for Domus is to offer uh, those types of opportunities in the co-living environment. Um, you know, there, there's more opportunity to interact with neighbors. I mean, everybody, has a story about living in an apartment building for 10 years and literally not knowing who lives next door, you know, or, or maybe not even having met the person that lives next door. And um, a lot of people are ready for a different living experience and, and co-living provides an opportunity to not just get to know the, the folks that you might be sharing your four or five bedroom unit with, but it gives you an opportunity to, to engage in activities with your neighbors. You know, it could be a movie up on the rooftop. You know, we're going to have a little movie screen on our Rossmore project. It could be meeting down in the gym. You know, we're going to have a beautiful uh, gym in, in the project. We're also going to have a rooftop pool. It's not going to be Olympic size, but you know, it's going to be a water feature up on the roof. So we think a lot about, the kinds of experiences that we imagine people want when, when they're living in an urban setting. Uh, Cause everybody needs a break once in a while from, you know, from that urban setting. And so it's important to provide opportunities for people to take those breaks. And do you yeah. think that the, do you think that the, the, the type of uh, person that you're referring to or, or, or your, your target, I don't know if it's client or, or who will end up living mm -hmm. and experiencing the types of projects that you envision and bring to life. Because mm -hmm. it sounds to me from what I read about you and of what I researched, there is a, a, I, I get the sense that there is a lot of envisioning beyond just the nuts and bolts and architecture. I, I, I get the feeling that you try to understand human behavior and really trying to weave in the experiences yeah. into the envisioning. Mm -hmm. um, have you seen or are you seeing a shift in what outdoor space means to people 
um, how they want to use it, what they are willing to uh, give up potentially to have more of it activated with. Are you seeing a different value proposition on outdoor space? Because the reason I ask is we would often see beautiful luxury, even projects and the the renderings in the billboard show these beautiful common areas and, you know, women and guys sitting on lounge chairs around the pool sort of in that common area. But yet when you look at that unit's actual balcony, which is often 300 square feet, 400 square feet, the developer or builder typically leaves it as here you go. It's blank. And they put a lot of time into thinking about kitchen, bathroom, upgrades, appliances, plumbing. And the outdoors is often sort of left as not really my jam, you know, that's sort of on your own. And we're seeing that start to change. I, I'd love your thoughts on if, if you have an impression on that and what you're seeing in, in your in your projects. Well, I'll, let, I'll let Daniel go first, but I'm, I'm sure we both have <laughs> impressions. Uh, yeah, we, 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 we probably have a lot to say. I mean, from my perspective, and I'm interested to hear what Richard has to say, I always would love to provide as much outdoor space as possible. I'd love it if every unit could have a balcony, a, a, a personal deck, a place to walk a dog, lay in the sun, you know, and all these things. Um, you know, but unfortunately in this business, especially within the urban core, you're dealing with, you know, a finite amount of space. And there are only a certain amount of things that you can do with that space. So so what you try to do is 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 get creative and get imaginative to activate as much of the space as possible. And I think on this particular project that you can see on the picture behind Richard, there are many levels of, of decks and outdoor space and personal um, you know, space, such as balconies and things like that, that are being offered you know, here. And I think it's done in a very unique way that you don't see you know, much around the city. Um, you, you see it mimicked in places in, like in downtown LA where you have like these rooftop bars or restaurants that have various patios surrounding them and, and things like that. And, and, and people tend to flock to those spaces. Well, you'll, you're gonna see spaces like that in this particular, uh, this particular asset. Now, when you get in other parts of the country where space is a little more plentiful, <laughs> we have, you know, there are assets that, that, that I've had on, on you know, multi-acre campuses. You have you know, 20 or 30 acre campus. Now you're talking about some space. You're talking about you know, amenities and the entire campus is you know, a workout facility. You can jog around it. You can, there's soccer, volleyball, tennis courts and things like that. It's really a matter of, of, you know, of the environment, but it really typically in the urban core in a gateway market such as Los Angeles in a neighborhood like Hancock Park, space is very, very limited and highly coveted we try to give as much of it as possible because it's it's just for me it's it's the way I'd want to live, you know. And so I'm I um I do see that people place a premium on it. What what do you think, Richard? Yeah, I, you know, <clears throat> I agree with um, everything uh, Daniel said and Brian. I agree with everything you said. <laughs> um, um I, I do think it. You know, it's always worth talking about where a person or a building or a community is located geographically, right? So, you know, obviously in Los Angeles and also in Atlanta, you know, we're both places are blessed with, um, you know, pretty good weather. Uh, you know, people may argue about whether Atlanta has better <laughs> weather in LA and vice versa, but reality is we, we both, both locations have good weather. And so there's always a, a, a premium on, on being able to get 
outside, you know, bring the outside in, bring the inside out, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, it's been a core, uh, certainly when you look at modernist architecture, that's been a core principle, you know, core concept since the beginning of, of the modernist movement, uh, particularly in a, an environment like California. It's been a, 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 an organizing principle uh, for many, many architects. So, yeah, we, we place great importance on it, but then to kind of refer back to one of Daniel's points, um, you know, when you're working with a limited budget, not everybody's gonna have a huge private deck. You know, not everybody's gonna have, you know, the grill out there, not everybody's, you know, you can't give everything to everybody. And, and one of the advantages to co-living is that, uh, you know, as opposed to an individual traditional apartment, you know, in a co-living environment, um, yeah, you know, maybe you don't step outside your living room right onto this big balcony, but maybe you go out in the hallway, you call a friend and you take a bottle of wine, you walk, you know, a hundred feet or something, and you go to the outdoor space where you guys could sit out there and have your wine or, you know, sit by the pool. So, so you can do in, in some ways, you can actually do more in a co-living environment uh, than you could in a, a traditional apartment building or for sure yeah. in a uh, traditional, uh, well, you know, smaller home, if you will. It, it almost starts in some ways to mimic human behavior of being on a vacation. And I'm sure some people, you know, when they're in a hotel room, mm-hmm. which is obviously smaller than in most people's, and you get to a vacation, whether it's an all-inclusive mm-hmm. or something, and the first day people are a little bit shy, and but by the by the sixth day, you're having dinner with the people you met and the size of your room. And it doesn't really matter anymore Here. because yeah. the common yeah. area and the connectivity that has occurred <clears throat> makes the detail of, I wish the bathroom was eight square feet bigger, seem unnecessary. Kind of forget about it because yeah. the, the connectivity of the experiences outside of where I lay my head down. Mm-hmm. seem much more important than those things that are really not that not that meaningful in how we actually enjoy and, and express ourselves. Yeah, yeah Ryan, I think it's, you know, you're right on the right on the button there. It's uh, uh, it's what we're trying to accomplish, you know, trying to make those those opportunities available to people. Really interesting. Yeah, it, it, to me, it's it's. It feels like there's been for a long time, and I think this is probably from you know parents' generation, the idea of success was bigger footprint, bigger lot, and the idea that I was going to drive 20 or 30 or, or 40 minutes to a home in the suburbs where I could live in five or 6,000 square feet on two acres, that was the, per- the perceived definition of success. Mm-hmm. And again, going back into my, my real estate days, we would, as we were doing our design charrettes, and my role, I'm no urban planner, I'm no architect by any means, but I would go live at projects and handpick and work with mom and pop operators on de- designing all the commercial experiences that would bring these projects to life. And I can't remember, I, I remember working on one in, in, in Freelixburg, Fre- um, Virginia, And I remember the average commute time for people driving up to D.C. was about two and a half hours each way. 
and that each morning, Monday to Friday, 65, almost 70% of the city's population would leave. And it mm. would just, it, it, people were spending the equivalent of almost a, a, a week of time in their cars. And I think that if we can talk about one of the, and there are not a lot of silver, there aren't any silver linings to this pandemic, but do you feel that maybe people's value expectations and maybe defining what is success? Mm-hmm. Is it maybe that I can walk to this or connect with my kids for an extra two hours a day because I'm not in my car? Do you think people's psychologies <laughs> on defining what is truly a definition of success mm-hmm. has changed or, or is in the process of changing in, in your yeah. world? Yeah. Danny, you want to go first or you want me to? Yeah, no, I'll, I'll take I'll take a whack at it. I mean, I think that's been happening since the great recession, probably earlier, you know, people, you know, a generation of people losing homes, losing, losing, you know, retirement and things like that. And in their children watching that happen and now getting out of college and starting out on their own, you know, and prior to that generation success being defined by the car and the home uh, and laws being put in place to encourage driving and commuting, you know, and for, for whatever reason in, in, uh, in sprawl. And so I think that model has, has, it's pretty, it's been tested. And, uh, I, and I think some people are opting out of it, to be honest, you know, um, you know, if you're trying to create wealth for retirement, you don't have to pay three times what the, the sale price of a house is over 30 years, you know, and, and get very little return on your money, you know, to retire. Now there's other, there are other vehicles to do that and spend an hour or two one way getting to that place where you put, where you're dumping all this money and paying three times the sale price of your house over 30 years. It, you know, it start. people are starting to say, hey, you know what, there's another way to do this. Mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, experience is one thing. And you also give up a lot of those experiences by trying to do that. And so I think this generation is looking at it like, yes, I do want those experiences now. I want to be nimble. I want to be mobile. I want to earn. I want to have a high earning potential. At the same time, I want to be able to go to different places to take advantage of different opportunities. And so they are looking at it by, you know, they're wanting to have it all. I believe they want the experience now at the same time, they want to be able to opt out of that old version of what success was and create their own. And so I, I see that as this was happening in the future, the way people are, are structuring their lives and wanting to live. Mm-hmm. Completely agree. Richard. Yeah. Ryan, I, you know, one of the little jokes that I've been telling or sharing with people or, Lately, uh, it's pandemic related is, you know, if you ask somebody, you know, hey, are you anxious to get back into the office? Like, nobody's anxious to get back into the office five days a week. You know, you might you might have people that go, yeah, you know, I'd love to go in the office a couple times a week just, you know, to do the collaboration thing. But I, you know, it's really hard to find people that go, gosh, I wish I had that daily commute. God, I wish I could sit in that office eight hours every single day. You know, it's not, I think that is one of the things that the pandemic has shown us. It's shown everybody, hey, there are different ways of living. Now, you know, there's, there's obviously a downside. There's tremendous isolation because of the pandemic. So we're obviously not talking about the isolation as being good, but you know, it, it has shown us that there, there is a different way to work, different, 
different way to place yourself so that you're able to work and different ways to interact, you know, professionally. So I think that stuff is, is all great, you know? And I also remember how, you know, when we went into that lockdown, how clean the air was, you know, how blue the skies were and everybody certainly liked that. So it starts to get you to start to think about, you know, what if people didn't have to, spend as much commute time what if they weren't in their gas you know their internal combustion engine car you know spewing carbon monoxide all over the place so um it's it's provided a lot of food for thought you know i think um i want to leave you or ask you with the the remaining time that we have one last one last question i believe whether it's in, in almost every facet of our lives in particular in in what the consumer defines as the type of space they want to live in. I believe there are patterns and cycles to that as there are in fashion, as there are, you know, bell bottoms will be back in a few years. It's just the way way it goes. (laughs) And, you know, if you think of the traditional family kitchen and eating environment of the 1950s, 1960s, the Brady Bunch and leave it to Beaver, the family ate in the dining room each night. There was that sort of, picture perfect sort of and today i think about people's dining rooms and and myself for one as i'm thinking about renovating my own home but why do i why do i need a dining room i literally use it two or three nights a year yeah and yet and i also think about what is what does that space do in more open environment my peep my kids and we we eat around the kitchen island it's where i drink wine with my wife my kids do their homework there's been a huge shift in people's use of that type of space. And I also note that if you look at the costs of outdoor space activation on a per square foot basis, it's often one of the lowest, if not the lowest spaces to actually activate if you look at total living space of a home. So if I'm handing you two gentlemen who are far wiser and more experienced than I, a crystal ball, what is the customer or the client of the future 10 years from now? What are they asking for? Is outdoor space different are there different relationships uh are they taking it more seriously making more investments in it help me understand what you you envision we're talking about the united states right <laughs> let's say for now because Just i think keep you know it, keep you it in the u.s at, keep in the u.s look if you look at europe you're talking about much smaller footprints and already yeah. a greater well, sense of living that's, and that's more why, density anyway brian that's why i bring it up because you know if you look at other you know certainly western style uh Democracies. I'm not sure how freely we can use the word democracy anymore. But um, if you look at other Western-style democracies, you know, outside of the U.S., there's no question what the trend is. I mean, the tr- the trend is that you know, living spaces are are compressing. They are getting smaller. Um, you know, it's an e- it's an economic reality. And so, to the extent that you can shift resources to provide outdoor space, you know, as as an you know, as a part of your living experience, I, I think that that's going to happen. I mean, I, I think it's already happening and I don't see why or how it would reverse itself. So. I guess, I mean, when it comes down to almost to the economics and I'll use just the back of napkin example, if you have a hundred units to sell at a thousand square feet, could you sell those hundred units at 925 square feet at the same price, if you offered an activated set of experiences outside that made those, made those living feet feel 
four times the size because of what you could do in living there. And from a developer side, do those economics start to make very interesting sense in the way you think about human or behavior? You, you know, you know, for, from my perspective, there there is give and take. You know, I prefer to see more innovative ways to build that can bring down the cost of building so that you don't have to, you can provide more space and not have to to offer less space in general. I'd like to offer more space. I, I, I know that that density is helping, like for instance, you know, on our Rossmore project, the fact that we have all these great amenities I and mean, you, you have a podcast studio going on in this place for people that's, you know, you just reserve it. You have libraries, you have co-working spaces, you have phone booths that are just soundproof. You can go in and make a phone call, these things like that. Um, chef's kitchen, you have a five bedroom unit, but the kitchen is, is for a 20,000 a month, you know, apartment, you know, it's just, you don't get that type of, those type of finishes, you know, in a, in a one or two or three bedroom apartment, unless you're in some really great part of town. And so, um, people are enjoying that at a price point that's just pretty unbelievable. And so that, that is the power of density. But at the same time, we don't want to make it seem like, you know, you're, you're not getting your fair share because your place, your, your place is just undersized. That, that's, that's, not, that's not the intent. You know, so there is a balance. And at the same time, um, you know, what drives us mainly is, is, is uh, you know, providing attainable housing, including people. Typically with projects like this, you see a large exodus. You see people being pushed out. We're trying to bring people into these areas that otherwise could not afford to live there. And so that is that is kind of the trade-off for us in multifamily you know, rental property. In terms of a for sale product, like you were giving the example about, that's a little different. I mean, I can see it being tempting on, the, on a business model to look at a plan and say, hey, we can cut down you know, 20% square footage and, and we can make more money, uh, potentially. Um, but we have repeat customers and we like customer retention. And the idea is you, you have these happy clients in, the, in a community that is, that is just thriving. You're, you're, you know, they live, they're better for it and so is your business plan. And so that's kind of how we do it. I couldn't agree with you more. There's nothing better than uh, when people bring like-minded people that you know, share their positive experience and they become your, your, future, your future clients through almost an ambassador, an, excuse me, an ambassadorship or a stewardship sort of model. I love it. Yeah. Gentlemen, gentlemen, I've really enjoyed the conversation with you. I want to thank you both very much for your time and for your inspiring work. Um, I wish you and your families and everyone around you continued health and safety. And uh, I will continue to follow your work on your website, on your Instagram. And uh, I thank you both very much for your time. Well, Brian, we, we appreciate the opportunity, but both Daniel and I both have an ask of you. Anything. Um, we've been told that you can help us with, with our outdoor spaces. It would be my greatest pleasure. Um, I don't know how much you know about Urban Bonfire, but uh, our philosophy is that we want people to have the same ability to have a canvas for memories and experiences outdoor as they do indoor. And that people okay. should not have to forego uh, aesthetic functionality, design, um, uh, ease, and those types of things just because they're in an outdoor environment. So we started in the outdoor kitchen business in 2013 in a 400 square foot retail shop in Montreal. And today, everything we do is based on our hopefully soon trademark term of your kitchen outdoors. And in just changing the ordering of those words, 
we are really trying to create the outdoor central gathering space for people to, as you've talked about earlier, to connect in, whether it's intimate and it's one or two people, or it's familial, or it's five or six co-living people who come together for an impromptu, you know, experience outdoors, those types of simplistic memories, which are much easier, I believe, to create outdoors. It's more casual by nature. There's less pressure on it. It can be more just come as you are, potluck sort of style. We are doing everything we can to be part of the vision for those types of spaces and places. Great. Then, uh, Ryan, we, uh, Daniel and I will be knocking on your door. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Fireside Chat with Richard Loring and Daniel Alexander of Domo's Co-Living. I certainly learned a lot about their philosophies on how a home is so much more than just its four walls and how experiences and things that people really need and want in their lives are helping to have them make decisions on where they live and how they live, especially in projects like the 410 North Rossmore project they're actively working on now. We loved having them as guests and thank them for their amazing work in this very needed field. As always, we would love to hear from you. Please join our podcast by subscribing today on Apple. Join our conversation on LinkedIn and on YouTube. And of course, we would love to hear from you on Instagram at Urban Bonfire. Thanks, and until next time, we really appreciate you listening.